Hello everybody and welcome back to Bigger on the Inside, the new Who Doctor Who Watch Along podcast. Uh, this is just Harry speaking today as this is a very special instalment of the podcast for I have had the wonderful opportunity to have a one-on-one interview with Mark Corden. Um, Mark Corden was a second assistant director for series 12, the most recent series of Doctor Who, as well as the uh, most recent special, Revelation of the Daleks. And in addition to that, he also played Omega in The Timeless Children, uh, making him the the very first actor to provide a face to that character, as we'd only seen him before in The Three Doctors, the classic Who story. Um, In this interview, we talk about his experiences as Omega and working on Doctor Who as a second AD, as well as his uh, relationship with the show beforehand. As it turns out, uh, Mark was a huge, lifelong fan of the show before working on it. And that, of course, um, made his experiences working on the show uh, very special. I uh, hope that you enjoy. That's all from me now. Uh, We'll be going into the interview. Thank you very much for joining me, Mark. Um, So before we kind of get into the nitty gritty, I was just wondering, um, prior to working on the show, what was your relationship to Doctor Who? Uh, Well, I've... um actually been a massive Doctor Who fan since I was a kid. Uh, so right back to when Peter Davidson was running around with his decorative vegetable in the early 80s. Uh, I remember, I think, I think Warriors of the Deep was is my first memory of it when he gets pushed off the balcony into the water. And uh, my brother and I used to recreate that in the local swimming baths. Or I say, I say we would. <laughs> Uh, I would recreate it by throwing my brother off the side of the swimming pool and into the water. <laughs> um, yeah, and, and to be honest with you, I've I've always loved it. I, I learned to read reading the Target books um, before we had the videos. Um, then I used to buy all the old videos so I could see, you know, what it was like. Uh, I got I used to get my dad to take me down to the Longleat Doctor Who exhibition. Uh, so you could see all the props and the costumes and things like that. So, yeah, I've I've absolutely adored the show. Uh, even back in the nineties when it wasn't being made, I used to read the the Virgin novels and then the Eighth Doctor ones after the after the movie came out. Uh, I've, I I went to the Bonhams auction sometime, probably in the early nineties. They sold off a lot of um, props and costumes. Uh, they were having a massive clear out, so I actually own an original costume from Nightmare of Eden, a big sort of silver spacesuit, and also oh, the wow. three um, radiation helmets from Planet of Fire. Uh, the end mm. when uh, Peter Davison puts the guy in it and he walks through the flames on on uh, Sarn, I think it is. Uh, That's so, amazing. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, I mean, really obsessive kind of proper geeky fan uh even before a few years before i worked on the show um i'd started going out to the uh, gallifrey one convention in los angeles um Mm. which is every february which is the world's biggest doctor who uh, convention and uh is absolutely brilliant if you ever get the chance to go you really should it's uh phenomenal i i i remember getting there uh, I had a friend who's Tony Lee, who's written uh, various comic books and for um, Big Finish. 
and he'd sort of persuaded me to go out and I met him for a quick bite to eat in the bar at about six o'clock in the evening and then he said uh, he was going to go off and have a quick nap change of clothes and meet me down here in a couple of hours and I said I'd do the same and uh, I, I think I managed to make about 10 feet out of the hall before I managed to uh, just get chatting to a load of people and having a great time and didn't didn't move I was still in my shorts and t-shirts and I think I still have my you know bag with me from the flight. <laughs> incredible incredible so you really are like a serious lifelong fan. I am. I mean, I I can't overestimate how important it's been. I mean, I, I genuinely did learn to read reading the books. Um, I got into working in film and television because I had a love for the show. I mean, I think, you know, when I was a little kid, I wanted to be the Doctor. I was a bit older, I wanted to play the Doctor. And then when I realised I wasn't going to be actor, I wanted to, you know, work on the show and, and be involved in it somehow. So... You know, in many ways, that's, yeah, that absolutely led to me getting into the film and TV industry. And as, as a, you know, a disproportionate number of people you meet have had some, you know, in, in the industry have had a love for it and have, have sort of been inspired by it in, in various different ways. I mean, I guess it only makes sense because it's, it really is a British institution. So I feel like there is a huge correlation between people from all parts of this industry who in some way have been affected by Doctor Who, especially because it's the stuff like the special effects and the switching actors is one of those shows where you really are aware of the production side of it. Yeah, I think that's true. And it, it is constantly reinventing itself. And, and it's inspiring in a sense of the creativity, um, whether it's the storytelling, acting, the visuals, like you say, the costume making, um, you know, there's, there's so much to that you can take from it and use not just to, copy but actually to inspire you to do something of your own your own twist on it your own version because who knows where, what's around the corner you know so yeah <laughs> I have to actually ask prior to actually working on the show professionally did you ever do any kind of fan projects or fan films or even things inspired by Doctor Who yeah uh, I mean as a kid I used to make um, I used to write and produce my own Doctor Who short films um, oh. so right from the age of about seven or eight uh my aunt had made me a um colin baker was the doctor at the time i think and you know so i had a big multicolored coat and i used to write scripts we had a cine the old cine 8 camera um film camera that my dad would film us on and i'd get school friends to come around and we'd go and run around the house and as we got a bit more sophisticated we got a camcorder that had a little vhs tapes in it uh and i'd write scripts and uh, I would get my cousins and my brother and school friends uh, would come along on the Saturdays and we'd go up to the local quarry and they'd all be dressed in costumes that I'd made with props that I'd built and, uh, uh, yeah, sort of running around having a whale of a time, really, <laughs> blowing things up and setting fire to quarries by accident. And, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In a sense, you were always predestined to eventually work on the show, really. Well, in one sense, you could say I was in the right place at the right time when they needed someone. And in another sense, you could say I'd probably been working towards it all my life and uh, had sort of consciously or subconsciously or a mixture of the two had kind of been, yeah, trying to trying to edge my way towards it, yes. So how did you end up working on the show? Uh well, the short short version is I was working in um, 
Roth Lock on Casualty. Uh, I've done a few few blocks of Casualty, um, and that's filmed in the same studios. Um, there's there's about eight different studios, eight or ten, I think it is studios. In Cardiff, uh, yeah, in Cardiff, but Roth Lock. Um, it's a purpose-built studios. I think Doctor Who moved there in the middle of Matt Smith's era. Mm. Um, and uh, they've got four sound stages there. And then there's another one or two for Pobble, which is a Welsh, Welsh language soap opera. And then at the other side of the building, uh, Casualty has another another three or four studios where they film you know, most of their stuff. So I've been working on that. Um, I think I've done a two two six-week blocks, sort of almost back-to-back, so I've been there for quite a while. And I just finished, uh, and I've been off, and I've actually directed my own short film, which we were in the middle of editing, and um, basically I just got a phone call. I was in the edit suites, uh, putting the finishing touches on the sound mix, I think it was, and uh, the voice on the end of the line says, uh, hi, this is such and such from uh, the Doctor Who production office. I was like, right. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they said, uh, look, we um, our second AD is uh, going away for a couple of weeks. We need someone to cover. Are you available? And at this point, you know, my knees are knocking and, uh, you know, my hands are shaking. <laughs> I just, uh, I, I held the phone away from my head for a few seconds and pretended that I was looking at a diary and put it back. And I went, yeah, yeah, I'm free. I'm free. I mean, I had no idea whether free or not, but I knew I was going to be. <laughs> <laughs> um so yeah basically it was literally i think they'd probably gone to the casualty people and said you know do you know anyone who who's free at the moment and it's half decent and they're given them my name uh so it really was the sort of right place right time and as it happened I went along, I did the two weeks, uh, and the guy that I was replacing, they then promoted him up to be uh, first assistant director for the the last two episodes of the last of series 12. So he needed basically to finish work then and then go and start work on prep. And so they asked me, would I carry on and do the rest of the series and the Christmas special, uh, the um, Revolution of the Daleks? And yeah, yeah, I was... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> quite quite willing to uh, uh, quite willing to go ahead and do that. That's great. So, which episodes was it in series twelve? Is it which episodes did you work on? Um, I I worked on pretty much all of them in some capacity, apart from the two parter that started it. That was completely in the bag by the time I got there. Um, I uh, now because we shot them out of sequence, so I think. I think I was the the lead second AD on sort of episodes six onwards, I think it is. Um, But I also did work on all the others because obviously you have, you mix the blocks up and you have some shooting and then sometimes you have reshoots and bits and pieces of other stuff. So I think I worked on all of them bar the first two, but I was the lead for four or five of them plus the Christmas special. Wow, so... With those and the Christmas special, you were essentially um, part of the Doctor Who kind of production team for a, a full series. Basically, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I missed a, yeah the first couple of months of filming. But other than that, yeah, I was there for a, basically, yeah, it was great. I mean, it was absolutely a brilliant experience. Uh, one of the very first things I did was in the studio with the, um, uh, the Jadoon. 
I wasn't. Oh yeah. I'm. T- I, I've. I've lost track of the time scale now, but we. I know we went off and we filmed the Jadoon by the cathedral. That was quite early on in it, and that mm. was fantastic. It, we must have done some studio first because I remember. I remember they had to do a very quick photo shoot because they realised they were going to be out and about in Bristol, not Bristol, wherever we were filming. Anyway, uh, at the cathedral, and um, and people are going to see the Jadoon, so they wanted to get ahead of the uh, ahead of the curve. So that we did a very quick photo shoot with Jody and a couple of our guys in the Jadoon suits and put those out on Twitter, I guess. Um, and then we went out, we overnighted, and filmed the stuff uh, out and about by the cathedral, and then inside when the doctor's talking to Ruth. Um, mm. I think that was that was the first script I got to read was the Jadoon episode one. So I was sat, I was literally sat there in the production office uh, reading through this, and I, I, I think I squealed about three times just reading the script. I mean, <laughs> so did you have, like, the full script, like, everything including Captain Jack appearing and the reveal that Ruth was a doctor? Did you have all of that? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, because my role, um, you, you know, it's not one of the ones where you can really hide stuff because I have to be in charge of getting people to and from where they're going and doing everything. So it's no good really, you know, and I I hire all the extras as well. So I have to know what's going on. Uh, So yeah, there was, there was never a time really when uh, anything was hidden from me. uh, So script wise. Wow. So all of those huge kind of canon bending things in series 12 just was all in your knowledge. And I guess you had to keep that all, completely under wraps oh absolutely. during film yeah yeah um i mean when um uh john barrowman came down for the jadoon episode he was only there for one uh one day we had him and he flown over and we didn't know for sure that he was coming back later on because we hadn't got the latest scripts for um revolution yet but it was kind of obvious that we probably would do because they were setting something up um, but we were we were filming in a um, I, I, it was another cathedral I think but it was a really modernist one this time and they'd converted it to look like the inside of a spaceship. Oh yeah. Uh, so it was all it was a big sort of concrete dome like thing, uh, mm-hmm. and they had to use really tight camera angles because if you moved anything to the left you'd see a stained glass window and. <laughs> but they had like really low lights as well. Yeah. 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 Uh, and so he we had. You know, rather unusually, we actually had a special makeup truck right next to the location, sort of parked up, and so that we could keep him as secret as possible. We had, you know, he was wearing a hoodie, and we had runners with umbrellas every time he walked to and from, in case anyone saw him and papped him and got the secret out. So we were very, very aware of security. Um, and I couldn't tell anyone. I mean, uh, I, I think there were some rumours that there was going to be some big guest star. And uh, even my mom was furious with me because I didn't. I didn't even tell her. <laughs> there was absolutely <laughs> no way we were letting this one go. <laughs> I mean, you, it works. Like there were. I know there's always leaks about stuff like certain monsters and costumes because obviously it's hard to keep those secret, especially when you're filming on location. But stuff like those plot threads of those characters returning and stuff about the time of child. All that was completely, completely unknown yeah. until the episodes came out. Yeah, we, we we were really lucky. We managed to pull that one off. I think, I think because we got there very early and it was quite a secluded 
place. You know, it wasn't like a, you know, the middle of the high street or anything. We couldn't have done it with the Jadoon, for example, but uh, with the Captain Jack thing, despite the fact that, I mean, being the big sort of exuberant show off that he is, he, he would completely forget about his hood and the things and he'd just stride out onto the street and we'd have people running after him trying to, uh, trying to cover him up. But uh, yeah, despite his best efforts, we still managed to uh, keep that one. Probably the hardest thing yeah. was when I went to the Gallifrey One convention uh, in February, what, 2020, just before the lockdown, mm. because uh, we'd had, the yeah, the series was halfway through broadcast. So I think we'd had the Jadoon episode had been on air the Christmas special and the, the last two episodes, the last two, three or four episodes of the series and the special hadn't aired at that point. So whilst we knew everything was going on and the audience knew half of what had happened, we were desperately trying to, you know, people were asking us questions and it, we're trying to, trying to remember what we could and couldn't say at this point, <laughs> where they got to in the <laughs> scripts. <laughs> you get kind of like a list of things you are not allowed to say kind of like officially, or is it just kind of all officially? General- uh, officially basically it's don't say anything it's just just <laughs> just don't you know <laughs> if in doubt just don't say anything um you know i i took my cue basically from what had been released on the official channels so you know if if it had gone out on a poster or a tweet or um anything like that then i felt i could talk about it but if um if, if there hadn't if there'd been radio silence from the bbc then i just kept it on because I don't want to be the person, I don't want to be the person that's, uh, <laughs> that's responsible for spoiling it for everyone. Oh yeah. Um, just going back to the actual role that you served on the show, um, second AD sounds like kind of a very specific responsibility. Um, also, you know what actors do, we know what writers do. What sort of kind of scenes and shooting and just general production stuff were you in charge of as the second AD? Okay. Um, so the AD team is split into three parts. You've got the first, second, and third ADs, assistant directors. Um, so the first one is on the studio floor, and they're in charge of the department. It's ultimately their role. And their job is really to keep things moving forward, um, keep the schedule of the day, make sure everything gets shot, uh, and oversee sort of health and safety and that side of things. Liaising with the director to the camera crews and the actors and all this the third ad is basically their right hand person on set so they're doing a lot of running they're in charge of all the runners um looking after things everything from getting people to and from set to getting the tea organized and getting people on the buses in the morning to get from base to location blah blah, blah. so the second ad which is what i kind of specialize in is it's a, a twofold role really um you're kind of basically in charge of all the logistics. So it's your job to do all the planning for the next day. So you've got to get all the information from the different departments about who needs to be where, when, what needs, what's coming in, and you put it all together on a call sheet and you make it work by hook or by crook, usually hammering it and <laughs> crying and uh, begging and pleading a lot. Uh and then you come up with a plan for the day. And then so, you know, if you're starting on camera at eight o'clock with these two actors, you know that they've got to be ready by 7.55 to drive out there, which means if they take an hour in makeup, 
they've then got to be here at this time, 15 minutes before that to get into costume. It's 40 minutes drive from where they're staying. So you get them picked up at this time. And then you sort of phone them up and tell them what good awful time in the morning they've got to be up. Uh, you make sure that all the special effects people, makeup artists, um, uh, people bringing ve- action vehicles that you can use, anything like that, you know, you make sure that's all going to be there and everyone knows what the plan is. And basically, you, you've just got to know everything that's going on and be able to sort of communicate that. Whilst at the same time, uh, the more creative side of it is you uh, go through the scripts and you are in charge of hiring all the extras, basically. So if, uh, you know, if you're in a school room, you realise you, you're going to need, you know, 25 kids to sit in the room. and uh, You know, anything that isn't the speaking role, basically, is up to you to uh, to find them and cast them. And sometimes with the director, they might want to see self-tapes from a few people that you found. Other times, some directors, you know, they just go, yep, you you do your thing and, you know, just send me what I need. Um, so that can vary. On Doctor Who, the interesting thing, of course, is a lot of the extras are, um, we don't really call them extras, we call them supporting artists. Uh, and uh, they, a lot of them are sort of returning people who play the monsters. So you get... Very often the same guys will be the people who play the Jadoon, the Cybermen, the Daleks, the, you know, this, that and the other. Um, largely because we know we can trust them. They're good creature performers and, you know, you don't see their face. So there's no reason why you, don't, <laughs> why you wouldn't use the same people over and over. Is it like a real specialism then, being able to be a creature performer? It can be. I mean, certainly... Certainly, we had boot camp for the Daleks because the Daleks hadn't actually been in it on mass for quite a while. So we had to some of the I think a couple of the people had done Daleks before, but we we had to you know get them in there and teach them how to move and do all of that. With the Cybermen, they were basically new costumes, so they had to learn how to walk in those. So we, and and walk in uh, unison. Whilst they've you know, got tiny little eye holes, they can't really see what they're doing. So again, you know, they have to sort of learn. So it's, yeah, it's it's quite a practice skill, yeah. And also being wow. claustrophobic as well. You know, you've got, you've got to find out whether the people can actually go all day with a big mask over their face and limited breathing and seeing and that kind of thing. Of course, yeah. It's really interesting just hearing about all the responsibilities you serve as second AD. It's kind of all these jobs where, from an outsider, it's nothing that you initially think about, but really without people doing that, nothing would function. It would all be complete chaos and disorganisation without you guys. That's that's basically it, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I've heard people say it's the, the most difficult job on set because just the logistics of getting everything done. Um, I haven't done every job on set, so I can't say that, but I do know, you know, most jobs are compartmentalised. So if you go in and, and you're a makeup artist, that's your role and uh, you know you will have a time to do that and then there'll be time when you're racing around for other people if you're a scene painter or a lighting person you know you, you do your bit and wait and then someone else comes in and does whereas with the ADs you're constantly going around all the different departments and sort of making sure they're on track and know what's going on and it's about I always say it's you're the you're the glue that holds it together and the oil that keeps it moving at the same time yeah, absolutely. So obviously, in addition to kind of 
being a professional work on the show, you were, as you've established, a huge fan of the show. So bringing those together and working on the Doctor Who sets, working with this team, were there any particular highlights, be it working with particular people involved with the show or getting to visit any particular sets or locations for you? Uh, for me, personally, the, the highlight was the sets, I've got to say. I mean, I, I, loved, uh, I loved the cast, you know, um, Jodie and, and Mandip and Tosin and brothers. Um, you know, they're a great bunch. Uh, but I... I do work with actors all the time on diff- you know I've worked you know more than a decade on different perform on different shows and things so you you know you get used to actors are people too <laughs> at the end of the day so I never felt you know it wasn't like I'm working with Doctor Who or this character or anything um even though it was cool but um you know they were great people for me the TARDIS set was wonderful um but a real highlight was we we had the uh, the Ruth Doctor's TARDIS, um, which is the the big Hartnell console that they built for. Um, I presume it was built for an adventure in space and time, and then got repurposed. And you know, I think uh, Capaldi's Doctor flew it at one point, didn't he? And um, it's, it sort of keeps turning up anyway. Uh, so they built that, and they built this wonderful three dimensional set with the original huge roundels, uh, the white roundels on the walls. And it was, I mean, it was remarkable. It was brilliant. And they built it for the Ruth Jadun episode. And they knew that she was coming back and they were going to use it at the end of the series. So they just left it standing for months on end. And, uh, so it was just there and it was brilliant. And, you know, I, I used to sneak on it all the time and just, you know, go and sit and have my lunch on it and... <laughs> play with the buttons and <laughs> you know I probably shouldn't but there was no resisting that one um and then all the different sets they built were incredible I mean the uh the Aleppo sets if you remember when they they went to uh they they found uh in Syria uh oh yeah yeah that was incredible that was a great set but what you probably don't realize is that is actually the same set as the um panopticon set on gallifrey so they kind of stripped some of the walls out slightly repurposed it painted it green and uh put a staircase in that wasn't there before took the fountain out of the middle and they used basically the same structure uh to create uh you know ancient destroyed gallifrey so as a fan of you know uh, the uh, 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 deadly assassin and things like that, you know, to, to them to have kind of rebuilt that. So I think it was meant to be the room next door, but it was essentially you know, the same thing. You know, I got to go and play on Gallifrey and run up and down stairs there, and <laughs> yeah, that was just amazing. Um, and there was another one, the oh, the escape craft that they uh, they fly. I think um, Brad and Tosin fly into the cyber ship. Oh, it was, yeah. It was, yeah. It was a round ship, and they'd kind of put it with the walls on casters. So the middle of it and the seat stayed where they were, but the walls actually span around them at the same time. Oh. So it created this incredible effect of uh, everything in motion at the same time. And, you know, incredibly clever. I mean, the sets were brilliant. I mean, amazing. 
yeah that's amazing that's that last one's really ingenious like i kind of i didn't realize that much was done in camera i kind of assumed something was green screen or something yeah the, to be honest with you they use very little green screen i mean you know obviously certain things have to be but um a lot of the sets were huge because they've got these massive sound stages and um they build them in uh complete four walls and a to the roof so you're completely enclosed in it and you can point the camera in every direction and move it around and uh you know create these incredible uh vistas that you never could have done in the old you know three walls and no roof kind of uh <laughs> proceeding in march kind of shooting they used to do back in the day yeah that's incredible i had no idea it was that immersive yeah and of course you got to be kind of involved with those sets even more directly when uh you ended up um in the timeless children's story playing the time old omega how did that come about uh well that came about because um i i was reading the script and given that it's my job to to hire the non-speaking parts basically um i i just thought it was too good an opportunity to pass up i mean i, I quite often like to have a little you know, passing walk through role in anything I work on. And so I'd kind of been eyeing the Doctor Who scripts and thinking, oh, you know, what I've got to do something. And then there's just this one scene where you've got uh, the regenerated Tectuan character walking down a corridor. And I think it says in the scripts, you know, it's walking towards two um, the founding fathers of Gallifrey. This could be Rassilon and Omega. And they see each other and they all turn away from the camera to face this bright future, a very atmospheric 30-second scene. And um, I was like, well, I've got to do that, haven't I? <laughs> so uh, I spoke to Jamie, the director, and um, I just said, hey, look, what, what do you reckon if I, um, if I have one of these little... T-? And he was like, yeah, you've got to do it, yeah. So I was like... Right, well, I've got the director on board. That's the first thing. And so I just I just kept chipping away at it, and I just sort of suggested. Um, we wanted to get the idea that, uh, you know, this was connected back to the early days. So I decided that um, Rassilon would be uh, played by someone who looked roughly as, as close as we could get to Don Warrington because he, Don Warrington, plays Rassilon in the Big Finish audios, I think, uh, set in the early days of Gallifrey as well, if I remember rightly. So um, I thought, well, this is a great way of having that kind of continuity with that. Uh, so we got a rough, you know, look-alike for him, and we, then we had the regenerated Tectuan, who's someone we wanted to look as opposite to the original Tectuan, who's a, a white Irish woman. So we had a, you know, a sort of a, a younger black chap. Um, and then so it sort of left it open for me. And I thought, well, yeah. <laughs> and it was great. Everyone, everyone was really up for it and um, thought it was really good fun. Uh, they all knew that I was a massive fan by this point. Uh, so they, I had a proper costume fitting. They actually made the robes, especially for me, to my size. Um, I think we reused the Time Lord headdress thing. It was sprayed a new sort of gold colour, but um, that was definitely a sort of reused prop. And yeah, it was amazing. And, but all the way through, I kept thinking, at some point, someone's just going to say, 
no, this is too important. We can't just give it to the AD. <laughs> We've got to have a proper actor. We've got to have someone do this, someone do that. But no, right up to the day. And yeah, got there and yeah, I suddenly stood on set. All the actors had gone back to their trailers and uh, yeah, they shepherded us on and put these headdresses on us and I suddenly stood there as a Time Lord on Gallifrey. I mean, it must be so cool for you because now you've pretty much solidified yourself within the canon of Doctor Who. Like, if you go on something like, I don't know if you've looked, if you go on the page for Omega on TARDIS Wiki and you scroll down, there's the image of you from the Times Children. And amongst all of this really rich history spanning across all of Doctor Who media, and now you're part of that. It's brilliant. I love it. Um, I mean, you know, I might have used my sharp elbows and, you know... (laughs) edge my way in but uh yeah damn it i mean god if you if you're in that position you might as well go for it so uh why not yeah yeah no, no one had ever seen his face before so uh, why not have it as mine incredible yeah absolutely <laughs> the incredible thing was i think it, it kind of said in the script that it was meant to be silhouetted and you could barely make out their faces and they turned away so i wasn't expecting you know for people really to recognise it was me. So actually, when we saw the broadcast episode, I was amazed at how much of me you could see. Um, mm. And I thought, well, that's brilliant, isn't it? And just took a few screen grabs from it. Um, and then on the anniversary, on the 23rd of November last year, they released a full-on shot of us facing the camera and uh, on Twitter and said these are the founding fathers of Gallifrey so if there was even any doubt from the scripts that you know this could be Marcelona or Omega even though we use the same costumes for us uh it's it's now canon yeah that's it (laughs) now you've mentioned um costumes and having one made just for you um Obviously, we know that there's a lot of people who've been involved with the show who've been able to take away little pieces of costumes and props. You know, obviously, David Tennant and Jodie Whittaker have their costumes. Uh, Albert Valentine, who played the uh, Empty Child way back in 2005, I believe he got to keep the gas mask. I'm just wondering, was there anything from the show, um, either something you wore or something belonging to anyone else, that you managed to keep for yourself? I I did petition them very hard to let me keep the the Omega costume, but unfortunately that's uh, that's gone back into storage. Although it's rather coolly, it's in a in a box that says Omega, played by Mark Corden on such and such a date. So uh, that's almost as cool. Uh, I um, I kept all of my copies of the sides and the call sheets and the scripts, um, and we had so many different versions of the scripts. You get pages and pages changing all the time. So I've got the pinks and the greens and the blues and the yellows and the double yellows and you know all this sort of stuff so there's some some archivists in the all the years to come and from dwm will probably have a field day going through all the script changes that we, we went through um the only thing i kept i would love to i would have loved to have kept it some pieces but you know there's the, the professionalism thing and also the how do you get it out the door but I did actually grab a handful of the uh, the rubble from destroyed Gallifrey uh, oh. and sneak that away in a little pot. So I, I do have at home a little glass container with uh, some of the destroyed rubble of Gallifrey in it. 
which to spoil everyone's illusions is actually old shredded rubber car tires <laughs> that are liberally thrown around the place and it looks absolutely terrible and like destruction but you know if your actors have to fall over and do a stunt they're not going to hurt themselves on it i mean you know when it comes to taking something from the set taking some of the rubble of gallifrey that's like the equivalent of astronauts taking rocks from the moon isn't it well that was my thought yeah you know what, what could be better <laughs> uh yeah the, the only other <laughs> the only other thing i've got which has nothing to do with the episodes i filmed at all but um, I was I was walking down the long corridor uh, outside the studios, and I had a pair of sort of checked trousers on and a shirt and a, a waistcoat. I tend to dress up at work, even if I'm, you know, most people are jeans and t-shirts. And uh, Ray, the costume designer, literally collared me and pulled me one side to one side, and he said, "Are you are you cosplaying uh, Peter Capaldi?" I was like, "Not consciously, but I don't know, maybe." <laughs> And he said, well, I put, him in, I put him in some trousers very much like that. And uh, so he, he took me over to the costume store and rifled through. He said, yeah, yeah, these are the ones. Yeah, it was a, the, the episode where he's underwater and with the ghosts underwater and that. And, oh, uh, yeah. Uh, he said, yeah, these, uh, these are the, the stunt double trousers for Peter Capaldi. If, if, if they fit you, you can have them. So I definitely sucked my gut in, and believe me, those trousers fit. So they're now hanging up in my wardrobe as well. <laughs> Twelve Doctor's trousers—that's incredible. Twelve Doctor's stunt trousers, yeah. Not, not... <laughs> same, same. They look the same. They look the same. They're the same trousers. Yeah. <laughs> so yes, that uh, that did make me laugh. That's amazing. So um, this is something we're going to ask. It's not related to your work on the show, but it's just something that's so recent. At the time recording, less than a week ago, it was announced that um, Jodie Whittaker and Chris Chibnall would be leaving the show. Um, as an insider yourself, to an extent, uh, do you have any thoughts on predi- or predictions on who the next Doctor or show runner could potentially be? Uh... I mean, I've not had nothing to do with this latest series at all. Uh, so I've, I don't know anything about what's happening or what's going on. I genuinely don't. Um, and even if I did, I wouldn't tell you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> from my point of view, I hope the person they find to play the Doctor is sort of relatively unknown. A bit a bit of the Matt Smith kind of thing. I think I think the Doctor works best when it's someone who the audience doesn't associate with another role, they can make it totally them. And, you know, someone with with big personality, someone who can play the, uh, the, the colourful, playful, banterish side of the Doctor, but also someone who can bring that world weariness and anger and frustration at all the wrongs and things like that. I think, you know, that's someone we need. So I, I wouldn't want to... Um, I wouldn't put a name to it. No, because I think I think any actors that I, you know, that, that I would suggest are probably too famous to play it. If you know what I mean. Mm. Yeah. Although um, you know, I've worked with some brilliant actors who probably do a really good job. But I mean, my my personal hope, you know, is yeah that they they would pick someone that I haven't heard of so that they can be the Doctor, not such and such playing the Doctor. Um, yeah, totally. For for showrunners, I mean. I think I think it'd be really interesting to have you know, not a white man show running. Mm-hmm. You know, That's true. Uh, it, 
you know, I mean, someone suggested um, uh, Vinay Patel, who wrote Demons of the Punjab or Fugitive of the Jadoon, with Jadoon, with oh, yes. that I liked. Now, I mean, I think I think they were both great stories and very well written. Um, whether he could or would want to show run is a different matter. I mean, but the the problem is show running is so different from just writing. I mean, you know, if you look at what Stephen Moffat did. You know, he wrote some amazing stories and then he became showrunner. And I, I love his era the best, personally. But, I, you know, you could see it was a much harder job to have overall control of 12, 13, however many episodes a year they were making back then. So it's not just a case of finding someone who's a good writer, but it's also someone who's a good producer. Or you, then, or you find someone who's a great writer and someone who's a great producer and they make a great team. Um, mm. But um, I mean, someone like I mean, whether it's an obvious candidate or not, I don't know. But someone like Phoebe Waller Bridge, I think, would have a really interesting take on it. You know, I've heard lots of people mention Phoebe, yeah, both as showrunner or as Doctor. Although I think she's perhaps too big for either. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think yeah, the reality of getting her to showrun for a long, you know, three or four years, which is what you'd want, is very, you know, Hollywood career taking off that kind of thing. Um, curveball one um, Lisa McGee I don't even know she wrote and created Derry Girls um, oh, but she was also a writer on Being Human so she's kind of got that genre kind of experience um, and with humour as well I mean I, I, I love Doctor Who when it's got a sense of humour about itself again probably why I love the Moffat stuff because he came from a comedy background writing coupling and shows like that so, you know, maybe maybe something like that, um, or controversial. But I've always loved Jane Espenson, who was one of the key writers on Buffy the Vampire Slayer. She's done Battlestar Galactica. She's done, I mean, everything. But but she's American, so you know, is is that a step too far? Who knows? <laughs> I feel like people would definitely draw a line at an American playing the Doctor. I feel like people want the Doctor to be British. But behind the scenes, sure enough, yeah. who knows? Yeah. I mean, a really interesting one, I don't know if you've seen, but um, uh, J. Michael Straczynski, I think that's how you pronounce it, who was the creator and showrunner on Babylon 5 back in the 90s. Yes. He's mm. basically thrown his hat into the ring and said he would love to go and do it. And, I mean, I, I, funnily enough, during lockdown, I rewatched all five series of Babylon 5, and it is a brilliant show. So, you know, for someone who's a self-confessed fan of Doctor Who and has that the writing chops of doing something like that, and, and he basically wrote, I think, every episode of, like, seasons two, three, four of Babylon 5, you know, and that's, like, 20-odd episodes a year. So he definitely... Yeah, which is more than a series of Doctor Who. Yeah, exactly, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, again, American, but... Yeah, fantastic. <laughs> yeah. Right, so one last thing uh, before we uh, 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 say goodbye. Um, just want to find out kind of what you are working on right now. You said you're not working on Doctor Who, um, but you've, uh, you mentioned that you did a short film recently and are there any projects you've got coming up uh, soon that you'd like to promote as well? Um, I've got a short film which is currently available on Vimeo. It's called Keep Breathing, um, directed that. It's actually a couple of years ago now. Uh, it's done the festival circuit, um, picked up a few awards along the way, which is very nice, uh, especially for my uh, lead 
actor and uh, actress who both won best uh, best actors in their fields in in different um, festivals. Uh, we got best picture and uh, best um, screenplay a couple of times as well. Uh, so that's about sexual consent and looks at the different perspectives of two people after a one night stand, a, a man and a woman who get trapped in a lift together a few weeks after the night and are forced to confront, you know, their, their differing versions on how they, uh, how they perceive the night. Um, I'm currently working on an ITV drama, uh, it's called McDonald and Dodds. We're doing series three. Um, so we're just in prep for that at the moment. I've just finished a series, uh, another ITV actually called The Long Call, which may have a name change before it goes out, but that's uh, a detective series set in Devon. And I also did a a film with Terence Davies uh, called Benediction, uh, which we shot at the end of last year, which I hope, I think it's starting to do the festival run now and I'm not quite sure how that's going to end up in the cinema or digital platforms. But they're all exciting things that are coming out very soon. And as for me personally, I'm trying to put together a, a feature. It'd be great to actually get a, a film under our belts now because we, we did a, a very long short. <laughs> it's, it's about 20 minutes long. And I think our next idea is that we try and put something uh, bigger and better and and you know, come up with an idea that lasts for a feature-length amount of time. So we're currently in the very early stages of development for that. Oh, brilliant. And is there any way that for that upcoming feature, people can support it in any way right now? Or do you just have to wait? Um, not at the moment. I mean, as I say, we are very much just looking for ideas. I mean, uh, you know, if, if, if people are writers and they have uh, ideas or screenplays, uh, you know, uh, I'd, I'd be more than happy to look through things. Um, you know, we are looking for collaborators. I, I both my writers, well, I say my, my producing partner and I uh, are good co-writers, but I don't think either of us particularly want to be the main writer. So someone who's, you know, main main interest is writing, but happy to work as part of a, a collaborative team. Maybe you could put a, a link to my email, or we'll do something. Uh, yeah, uh, yeah, sure. I'm sure this. you can put links to that and uh, keep breathing yeah yes please yes that'd be great yes i'd uh, really love for people to uh, to be able to see that and that concludes our interview with the lovely lovely mark corden i hope that it was as fun for you guys to listen to as it was for me to listen to him uh he truly was just an excellent person to talk to really really lovely guy um if you're interested in any of mark's work outside of doctor who uh, we will be putting the link to uh, Keep Breathing, his short film, in the description. Uh, that's available to view on Vimeo. And uh, if you just so happen to be a uh, writer who has some sort of feature-length screenplay that Mike might be interested in, we'll put his contact details in the description as well. Um, I hope that you've really enjoyed listening to this again. Uh, and also a huge thank you to Mark for being on the show. Uh, we really, really are truly grateful for you giving us your time uh if you want to hear uh, us speak to more people and you want um us to get more guests on the show the best thing you can do really is uh support our podcast and have us uh known so um follow us on youtube spotify acast whatever's the best way for you to listen to us we're also on instagram and twitter at big on the pod i believe um 
and just kind of tweet at us, tweet other people you'd like us to speak with, that sort of thing. Um, and again, thank you for your support. And that's a thank you from me as well as Tim and Harrison. It means so much that you guys uh, listen to us. Um, this is just something that we kind of started doing for fun, honestly. And the fact that it's grown into something kind of as large as it is, I know it's nothing huge, but it's just kind of a moderately successful podcast. But the fact that we're getting people from the show and we're talking to them and we're just getting to really engage with the wider community of Doctor Who is a really special thing and a really um, something that me and Tim and Harrison really, really value. So, uh, again, thank you for listening. Hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. And uh, bye bye